Wednesday, April 24th, 2013, episode number 47 of the Football Nation Today podcast with Alex Reamer on footballnation.com. This jersey that we wear today, it doesn't say Red Sox, it say Boston. We want to thank you, Mayor Menino, Governor Patrick, the whole police department for the great job that they did this past week. And that's one of the advantages of hosting a podcast. We can play you the unedited version of that speech. If it's okay with the FCC, it's okay with me. Welcome into Football Nation Today, episode number 47. My name is Alex Reamer. We will have a normal show today. We'll talk a lot of football. NFL draft coming up tomorrow. First round of the draft tomorrow night. Second and third round Friday night. Then rounds fourth through seven on Saturday. But before we do that, just some closing thoughts on the events over the past week here in the city of Boston. Uh, That, of course, was David Ortiz, who gave one of the more genuine speeches you will ever hear in your life prior to the first pitch at Fenway Park this past Saturday afternoon. One of those special days at Fenway, and it speaks to what we talked about last week on the show, that in times of tragedy, uh, sporting events serve as a catalyst for our response. They serve as a unifier for us as a people. Uh, The Bruins game last Wednesday night with that inspiring national anthem, another example of that. Uh, But in hindsight, and I was thinking about this over the weekend, uh, there's nothing normal at all about that Bruins game last Wednesday night. I mean, there were still terrorists who were living a stone's throw from the garden last Wednesday. Um, So nothing normal at all about the events of the past week. We try to return to normalcy or some form of normalcy this week, but we do so with mixed emotions. I mean, I could not be more proud of our local authorities and how courageous they have been through all of this. Policemen, firemen, first responders, they are the real heroes in this world, and their actions over the past week have shown why. But this was a terrible tragedy, which claimed the lives of four and injured 176 and more, if you count those who were injured in the shootout between suspects one and two, and the police force and local authorities Thursday night into Friday morning, such as transit officer Richard Donahue, uh, the Richard family in Dorchester, who lost their eight-year-old son Martin, or Sean Collier's friends and family, the MIT officer who was shot on duty Thursday night. Uh, They will never be able to return to normalcy. They will never be able to turn the page. So it's important to remember that as well, as we begin to try to return to some form of normalcy this week. And over the coming days and over the coming weeks, we will continue to learn more information about these terrorists with Jakar, suspect number two, the younger brother, still in intensive care as of this recording, but alive and responding to questions from authorities. Uh, The most frightening thing to me is how these two snuck under the radar for so long. Uh, The FBI interviewed Tamerlan, the older brother, suspect number one, two years ago at the request of Russia but didn't find anything incriminating on him. I mean, they let him leave the country not that long ago to go back to his native Chechnya. Uh, Jakar, by all accounts, was a typical college sophomore who smoked weed on the weekends and played pickup soccer after class. It's amazing how these two terrorists 
could sneak under the radar for so long. And I will never bitch again about long lines at airport, at airport security or long lines getting into a sporting venue because it's for our safety. And that's what it's all about. And that's unfortunate that that's the world we now live in, but it is. Uh, but what a week, week plus, really, it's been here in the greater Boston area. As I said, we try to return to some form of normalcy this week, and we do so by talking football here on Football Nation Today, available, of course, every Wednesday on footballnation.com and for download in the iTunes store. Coming up momentarily in our first down segment, we welcome in Todd DeFreeze. You know him from footballnation.com, also collegefootballgeek.com, SiriusXM Satellite Radio, and patriots.com. He's everywhere, so we thank him for his time. Here on the show today, Todd will be at the NFL Draft this weekend, so he gives us his draft insight and also some insight into the Darrell Rivas trade, uh, which in my opinion, now the trade has been complete, we know the terms, it's raised more questions than answers. Uh, how come the Buccaneers were the only serious suitor for Rivas? How come that's all the Jets got for Rivas, who when healthy, isn't just one of the best defensive players in football, but one of the best players, period, in football? Uh, why did Rivas take a deal with no guaranteed money? Did he really think there would be no other options out there for him at the end of the season when he can hit free agency? So the Rivas trade, in my opinion, now that it's complete, raises more questions than answers. We'll talk about that, and then, of course, a lot of draft discussion coming up with Todd DeFreeze. Then the second down segment, we look at the business aspect of the NFL draft. We talk a lot on this show about the NFL is trying to dominate the sporting calendar for the entire 12 months. The NFL draft was once just a weekend affair, and really, who cared about Sunday? It was all about Saturday, but now it's a three-day affair. We'll talk about that and an edict Roger Goodell sent out to media members covering the draft this weekend. Then the third down segment, it's a big up slowdown segment, exploring more angles from the Darrell Rivas trade, and also some things to look out for in this year's draft. The 49ers have 13 picks. Are they the team to watch? And are the Kansas City Chiefs actually in pretty good shape, even though they have the number one pick? And went 2-14 last season. Then the fourth down segment is the Rima rant. Where Rondo McLean, linebacker for the Ravens, was arrested over the weekend. For yelling obscenities, among other things, at a police officer. What a knucklehead. Especially given what we've been through over the past week plus. It's Football Nation today, episode number 47. My name is Alex Reamer. We'll be right back with Todd DeFreeze. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back, Football Nation Today. First down segment this week, we welcome in Todd DeFreeze. You know him from Football Nation Today and also College Football Geek. Todd, how are you? Thanks for coming on. Doing well, my friend. How are you? Doing well. Todd DeFreeze, again, gracing out to his presence here on Football Nation Today. We will get into the draft, Todd. You are a draft expert, or I am calling you a draft expert, so you know, <laughs> welcome for the compliment. Uh, but I want to first talk a little bit about this Darrell Rivas trade. We spent a lot of time thus far this offseason on the show talking about the Rivas trade rumors, the Jets and Buccaneers conversation. Uh, my question to you is, what do you think of the package the Jets received, the 13th overall pick this year, a conditional pick next year? Uh, was that enough for Rivas? Do you think the Jets did the best they could, given this situation? Well, that's a loaded question. Uh, is it yes. enough for Rivas? If, if Rivas is healthy, if he can get back 90% of his former self, then no, is not enough for Revis. 
But did they get the, the most they could probably get for him? I suppose so. Um, I don't think there were many other suitors out there from what I can tell. So they probably took the best deal they could get. But was it enough? I don't think so. Now, why weren't there more suitors for Revis? I mean, when this guy's healthy, I still think he's the best defensive player in football. When this guy's healthy, Alex, you can make the argument he's one of the top five players in yeah, all of football. No doubt. I mean, so, you know, these guys don't just throw on trees. How often do you truly have a shutdown corner of this caliber uh, once every 10 years and they find yeah, one for a franchise? Especially so, now since it's such a passing league, the corner becomes that much more valuable. Absolutely. So I don't get it. I mean, there, there has to be some underlying injury uh, issue here that we're not aware of. Now, Tampa Bay, if you want to flip it a little bit, from their side of things, obviously it's a great deal in my view. Um, you know, you give up a, a first-round pick. There's no guaranteed money, so it's kind of a year-to-year deal. There's, you know, very little uh, downside for them. If he's back to being healthy again, you're going to line him up against the Julio Joneses and uh, Marquise Colston's of the, of the world out there in, in that uh, tough NFC division. And if he is injured again, well, you, you, you roll the dice and, you, you know, you, you cut your losses after one year. Yeah, I mean, we'll get to the contract in a second, but going back to the Jets, you know, I've said all offseason, the Jets have to trade Revis because they're not going to re-sign him next year, and you might as well get something for him instead of nothing. He, you're not going to win with him or without him. You know, all those cliches, he's more valuable to another team at this point than he is to you. But looking back on it, Todd, I say, I mean, why did I and many others consider it to be a foregone conclusion that the Jets weren't going to re-sign Revis. I mean, are people like me letting the Jets off the hook for, you know, for, 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 for accepting it as a fact that they weren't going to pay him after this year? And then, as you mentioned, trading him for a guy of his talent is, amounts to what essentially is pennies on the dollar. Well, I think it comes from the top level of management there at the Jets. I think they, they got the edict from above. We're not signing this guy for this type of money. Do what you can to get something in return. I think it's as simple as that. You know, I think the owner doesn't want to pay the big bucks. He doesn't want to pay the $96 million for a potentially injured cornerback. So I think it's as simple as that. You know, I don't think there's much more to the story. And I think that the GM and uh, to a lesser extent Rex Ryan just did the best they could to, you know, to move them. But I'm, I don't know, man. You, you don't just move guys like this in the prime of their careers unless you know something everyone else doesn't know about that injury. So it's not possible that Woody Johnson's just cheaping out. You think he definitely and the Jets know something that other teams don't know about Revis's? No, opinion? no. I, I think it's. I think it's. I think it's a little bit of both. I think that Woody. I think he's definitely cheaping out. I think he said we're not paying this guy. So you know, end of story. Do the best you can. And uh, there might be a little bit of injury concern there. Maybe that's why he's not going to pay that kind of money because of the possible injury concern. But uh, it's, it's a combination of both. But I think that they're, they're equal parts cheap and probably a little concerned about the injury. Right, I mean, but I agree. Given the situation, I think John Idzik and the Jets football people, I guess, did the best they could, but it's still amazing to me, Todd. I mean, when Revis first hit the market or the rumors first started around him, I said, damn, I mean, Denver should be on him, given their performance in the postseason against Baltimore. Indianapolis, or I mean, I thought teams would be, San Francisco, you know, added legit number one corner to that Super Bowl caliber defense. I mean, I'm with you. There has to be a bigger story here as to why the Buccaneers seem to be the only serious uh, contender for Revis. Yeah, that's that's the that's the strange part of the story. Is this what you said? Why was there really only one serious contender? As far as we know, it was just the box. There's got to be a reason for that. Now, one of the reasons is, you know, again, we're not going to pay top dollar for an injured player. You know, that's probably part of it. But it, but if you can get the if you could structure the deal like the Bucks did, it seems like a no-brainer to me. Now, I want to ask you about that contract, Todd. Six years, ninety-six million, no guaranteed money. 
Uh, I guess the Bucks can cut bait at any time, which makes it attractive to them. But, you know, without a signing bonus, as you know, they can't prorate any money throughout the length of the deal either to lower Revis's cap hit. So, you know, I don't really get this deal, Todd. For, I mean, I understand, again, for the Bucks, they can cut bait at any time, which I guess means a lot to them. But it doesn't give Revis any security beyond this season. And though it gets the Bucks the cap for every year if they pick, if they, if they pick up his deal... Um, it doesn't give them a lot of cap flexibility unless, of course, I guess they restructure it. So tell me why both sides would agree to this deal. That's a great question. Uh, Tampa Bay obviously had the money. They had the cap uh, room to do this type of deal. And a part of the reason for that, if you think about it, Alex, they haven't yet, uh, you know, had to deal with Josh Freeman and that next, you know, his next big deal, right? right? He's still a young quarterback. He hasn't gotten to that point where he can command $100 million like these other guys can. So if they... If Josh Freeman does turn into something, um, you know, then they're going to have major cap problems trying to sign him if, you know, if Revis is still on the team, that type of thing. Now, why would Revis do this? I don't think Revis had much of a choice. You know, what, what were his options at this point? Um, I think he, he kind of took the best thing that he could take as well. He's obviously confident that he's going to come back and play well. He's going to get a $16 million this year, correct? Yes. So, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know that. I think he was probably painted into a corner as well. If there were no other suitors and the Jets aren't going to pay you, and the Buccaneers are offering this, you know, and it's a couple days before the draft. It's got to get done before the draft. So I don't, I don't think he had much of an option. Yeah, again, Todd, you know, that even makes me think even more. There's something more to this, because Revis is a guy who's obviously very cocky and confident in his ability. You know, why doesn't he say, look, I'm 100% healthy. I'm going to be the best defensive player in football this year. And, yeah, you don't want to give me guaranteed money? I'll let the market next year and get my guaranteed money. So, again, because, as you mentioned, he took this deal because there wasn't anything out there or he didn't think there would be anything out there, makes me wonder, again, if there's a little more to the injury or something else that, that we don't know about. Well, one thing's for sure, Alex. We've got uh, the next three or four days with all of the Chris Mortensons and Adam Schefters. We'll be digging deep into each team during the draft, and I wouldn't be surprised if we hear, you know, a few stories about this Revis deal that we haven't heard yet. That's a great transition, Todd. Again, we're talking with Todd DeFreeze, Football Nation Today, College Football Geek. NFL Draft. I'm a layman, Todd, when it comes to the draft. I'm going to be honest with you. I love to analyze previous drafts. I love to look at and critique team strategies in the draft. I think that's always interesting. But as far as specific players go, um, I really have no idea. So I'm going to ask you, someone who does have an idea. Uh, they say, Todd, this year is similar to the year Jake Long went number one overall. Um, so what are the strengths and weaknesses in uh, this year's draft, if you had to break it down in layman's terms? Well, the strengths are in the trenches, Alex. It's not a sexy draft. If you're into elite quarterbacks and wide receivers and running backs, this draft is not for you in the first round, in the early going. You don't have those elite skill position guys this year. What you do have are a, a tremendous amount of depth on the defensive and offensive lines, which, again, it's boring to the NFL fans that are going to be there in Radio City <laughs> on Thursday night, but... You know, you, you got to build the teams from the trenches. So in the long run, this might turn out to be a pretty decent draft. It's just not – doesn't have that star power. Mm. Now, uh, from a philosophical standpoint, Todd, again, this is what I find really fascinating about the draft. Do you think teams in the first round as a rule should draft on talent or draft on need? That's the million-dollar question, right? It's, uh, uh, give me a million-dollar you know, answer you, then. <laughs> Well, here's the deal. It depends on what type of team you've got. I mean, if you're if you're at the top of the draft, obviously your team struggled the year before, and I just think you take the best player you can. Um, you know, with ex certain exceptions, of course. Um, if you're at the tail end of the draft, if you're the San Francisco 49ers and your team is stacked and loaded 
all the way. You might take the best player um, available, or you could take, you know, a luxury pick, just a guy that's just, you know, going to be a perfect fit for your team, and you might disregard a couple players that are better than him because you already have the depth there. So, it, to me, it kind of depends on what type of team you have, what's your outlook. You know, if you're a Chip Kelly of Philadelphia, you've got a year or two to build this team. You know, people aren't going to expect you to make the playoffs next year. You've got a little different mentality than if you're the Seahawks or the Niners or the Patriots, where, you know, you're just trying to find a couple pieces to add to an already stacked team. Yeah, that was a kind of a t- cop-out, Todd. I'm a little disappointed with you, to be honest. <laughs> it, it really depends. I mean, here's the deal. If you look <laughs> at the Steelers, look at the Steelers and the Giants, right? Yeah. The Steelers and the Giants are notorious for taking boring picks, but they seem to pan out more. Yeah, they seem to pan out more than some of the other teams that roll the dice and, you know, the, the Raiders who have taken, I believe, 15 wide receivers <laughs> since they last went to the Super Bowl. By comparison, the Saints have taken 16 skill position players in total during those same time frames. Uh, so different teams have different, you know, uh, strategies going into this thing. It really just depends on where you are during the life cycle of your team. There was a discussion about some others on the show recently. I want to get your take on it. Let's say you need a quarterback, right? But you're not enamored with this year's quarterback draft class. You know, Smith, Matt Barkley, they don't do it for you. Should teams feel responsibility to draft a quarterback even if they don't think he's the guy, or is it okay if you're Buffalo or Jacksonville, and I'm just using them as an example, or the Jets, to take a pass and wait for the right guy to come along the following year? I don't think you want to overpay for the guys in this year's class, okay? You know, if you want to take a roll of the dice, so to speak, on a Ryan Nassib or a E.J. Manuel in the second round, I could see that as being, you know, okay, but if you're talking about the Buffalo Bills sitting there at number eight, and they've been widely uh, linked to Ryan Nassib of Syracuse, if they were to take Ryan Nassib at number eight, I think that's just that's just going too far. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. it's sometimes you're you're you sometimes you're you're lucky and you have an Andrew Luck like the Colts did last year. And other years, you're stuck with Jim Druckenmiller, who might precede your time, Alex. But yeah. he was the number one quarterback taken in, I don't forget how long ago it was, 1997. Uh, and he was the best quarterback on the board. So, you know, it just depends on the year. But, man, I, I, don't, I wouldn't take any of these quarterbacks in the first half of the first round this year. It's a very weak quarterback class. Do you think, though, GMs will have the discipline to do it? Like, do you think a guy like Buddy Nix, for example, has a discipline to say? I mean, I know there's some younger guys out there, but no, Kevin Cobb, Buffalo, this is what we're doing this year. you got to trust me on this. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see if some GMs have the uh, gravitas, if you will, to say, no, uh, Kevin Cobb is what we're doing this year because our guy's not out there. And you're right, and they usually don't. Alex, <laughs> they usually pull the trigger. You know, I mean, if you, I watched something this morning on the NFL Network saying that they don't expect more than one quarterback to go in the first round. I think there'll be more than one quarterback that goes in the first round because they're quarterbacks, and people always overpay for the quarterbacks. And I don't quite understand it, but, you know, they, they, some of these teams, it just takes one team to fall in love with one guy, and they'll, they'll do it. Look at Christian Ponder a couple years ago. Nobody saw him going as high as he went to the Vikings. I couldn't believe it. You know, I followed college football very closely. When Christian Ponder went, I believe, number 11 or 12 to the Vikings, I mean, this guy was a guy that I thought was like a third or fourth round guy at best. Right. You know? No, I mean. Uh, Ryan, Ryan Tannehill's another one last year. And right now, again, Ryan Nassib is a name that's, you know, keep an eye on him. Who knows where he's going to go? He could go as high as number eight or he could go as low as the end of the second round. 
Right. I mean, no, it's a very interesting point, Todd, because, I mean, now it's easy to say we're going to wait for a guy, but come draft day, are you willing to say, you know, Jason Campbell, folks, this is the guy we're going with this year. I don't know. People always love the shiny new toy. I'm going to attack with Todd DeFreeze from Football Nation today, college football geek here on the show. A few more points here, Todd. With the new CBA, interesting point here. Uh, teams can control first-round picks for a fifth year at a cost-controlled price. For anyone picked outside of the first round, of course, the length of the contract stops at four years with no club options. So, though traditionally, we may have seen teams trade into the second round in a draft like this. I know the Patriots are always all over that. Um, because of that stipulation, is the value now in the first-round picks? Could we see teams with high second-round picks try to trade into the end of the first round because of that stipulation? You can keep your first-round picks for an extra year at, uh, t- at a team-controlled uh, cost. That's an interesting point. I, I don't think – I think it's a nice um, icing on the cake. Mm-hmm. But I think when it comes time to the draft, Alex, I mean, these teams, these phone calls that are being made – <laughs> every GM is, is move, trying to move up and down all around. And I think it's more just a matter of circumstance, whether they wind up in the end of the first or they wind up, you know, with a couple extra second round picks. I don't really think they sit there on the phone as they're negotiating a deal on draft day, thinking we're going to get an extra year out of this player. I think they're just trying to get the player however they can. Now, how would you run your draft board, Todd? Uh, theoretically, to you, is it about perceived quality? And I say perceived because you know, we don't know for sure. Or is it about quantity? I say that for the Patriots, of course, because traditionally, the last year they bucked the trend. The Patriots have a pick in the middle of the first round. A lot of times they'll trade that pick, get a second-round pick, a third-round pick, and then a sixth-round pick four years from now. Um, is that the way to do it? Or, is, or in your opinion, would you rather have, uh, let's say, a couple of horses instead of a, instead of a bunch of ponies? Well, that's a great question. This year, I think because I think the answer is it's year to year, man. And this year, the value is to accumulate as many second, third, and fourth round picks as you can. There's not a big difference between, let's say, the 10th, 11th, 12th player off the board and the 50th player. There really isn't. There are years where there are definitively 20, 25 players that stand above the rest, and you just do not have that this year. You've got some nice depth at wide receiver, but none of them are elite. You've got some nice depth at running back. Again, second, third, and fourth round type guys. Decent crop of tight ends. We talked about the depth at offensive and defensive line. But, you know, uh, there are years where you want to be at the top to get that injured luck, to get that uh, dominating pass rusher, perhaps Jadavian Clowney next year, South Carolina defensive end, who if he would have come out this year, he would have been the consensus number one guy. This year, there's really no consensus guy. You mentioned the Jake Long pick from a few years ago. This is very reminiscent of that. Luke Jokel's likely to be the number one pick this week. But in any other year, man, he could have been 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th player off the board. So it's kind of a year-to-year thing. If you're talking about this year, my strategy would be dump the first-round pick, get back, and try to get as many second and thirds as you can for this year. Uh, that makes me roll my eyes a little bit, Todd. I'm so sick of the. You don't Patriots. like that. Uh, I mean, it's just the Patriots thing. I mean, I understand it from I understand it from a theo, from a theoretic from a you know a, a, a understand it from a, a theoretical perspective. But I mean, I look at the Patriots for example. They're the team who's drafted. I obviously follow them more closely. Belichick hits it out of the park whenever he picks in the first round. You look at their track record in the middle rounds over the past five six years. It kind of stinks, Todd. Even a team like the Patriots, who's real good. Obviously, Hernandez, Gronkowski, you know, bucked that trend a little little bit recently but 
You know, I mean, I feel like first round, I mean, there's really no difference between, let's say, the top five guys out of position and the top 15. I mean, there's really no difference there. there there's very little difference. Uh, there's, I mean, there's, there's a few guys at the top that are extremely intriguing. But, again, it's just there's a, there's a real lack of elite players this year. There just really is. Um, there's a lot of good players, maybe even potentially great players. But if you're talking elite, no-brainer type guys, um, this this draft is not for you. I mean, you follow the Patriots closely. I follow the Philadelphia Eagles closely. They've had tremendous success in the second and third rounds with the Brian Westbrooks, the Sean McCoys, of uh, Brian Hawkins even. So, it, you know, it kind of goes both ways on the team that you follow. And I understand what you're saying. Keep that first pick. Get the horse. The question is, if there's no horse to get, why not go back, get a couple extra picks, yeah. and, you know, plug some more holes. I feel you. I feel you. Again, we're talking with Todd DeFries. Two more questions, Todd. Number one, give me a team to watch in this year's draft. I know you, it's probably easy to say a team like the Chiefs or someone at the top, but my team, real quick, is San Francisco. They have 13 picks, Todd. they got to do something with those picks, right? They're the ones. They are the team to watch. They, they can m- maneuver up and down the draft board as they please, one would think. Keep an eye on them. You know, they are the type of team we discussed earlier who could kind of take a luxury pick, a guy that they really don't need, but he's just too sexy to turn down. Think of like a Tavon Austin mm. from West Virginia, the, the speedster they could throw in the slot and roll in the reverses and do all sorts of crazy stuff with him on offense. Now his stock is plumped, but it's skyrocketed to the point where I don't know that they're going to be able to get their hands on him, but that's the type of uh, pick that the Niners could make. Um, now, do you think there's a possibility to think the Niners could trade some of those picks for NFL talent, or do you think it's just going to be maneuvering up and down the board? I think they're going to maneuver. I think they're going to uh, probably, you know, they're not going to wind up taking 13 players this weekend. I just can't can't see that happening. So they might, and I I also don't think that they're going to be trying to take the Belichick approach where they're going to be accumulating picks for the future. I think they're going to try to package the the, the picks they have, move up in the first round, maybe move up in the second round, move up in the third round, and try to gather, again, as many of those top 60 players as they can. Uh, it should be very interesting. Keep an eye on them with a guy by the name of Marcus Lattimore oh. running back out of South Carolina. We talked about the lack of elite talent in this draft. If Marcus Lattimore hadn't had the catastrophic knee injury that he did, he would have been your elite skill position player uh, in this draft. The guy's a superstar. Now, he's probably a year away from playing again at a productive level. So, but the Niners are a team that could take him, staff him away for a year or so. When Frank Gore rides off into the sunset, they could plug Lattimore in, you know, in 2014. Last question here, Todd, what's your favorite round of the draft? I mean, is it the first round or for a real draft guy like you is the first round, you know, a bit where kind of the casual fans come out and are you really all about the fourth, fifth, and sixth rounds on Saturday. What's your favorite draft day of the weekend, Todd? Well, the way that they've structured it now, Alex, you've got the first round on Thursday night, right. second and third rounds on Friday night. That's good. I like that. And the fourth through seventh on Saturday. I am a Friday night guy right mm. now. For, for this year, watch Friday night. That's where, again, most casual fans are familiar with the skill position, guys. You're going to see a lot of running backs, a lot of quarterbacks, a lot of tight ends, and a handful of quarterbacks go on Friday night. So that's the night to watch. I think this year in particular, that's where the value is. Friday night. We'll be there. Todd DeFries, Football Nation today. 
collegefootballgeek.com. He's on Sirius XM, Satellite Radio, and Patriots.com. He's everywhere, and he was just on Football Nation today. Todd, as always, we thank you for your time. Before you go, though, any draft media stuff you're going to be doing this weekend you want the people to know about? Yeah, I'll actually be there reporting live for Football Nation at Radio City Music Hall. Nice. I'll be on... in my dorm room while you're doing that this weekend. So thanks <laughs> for the invite. <laughs> I'll be there. I'll be there. Follow me on Twitter at CFF Geek. I'll be reporting, blogging live as the picks go down on Thursday and Friday night. I'm not sure if I'm going to stick around for Saturday yet. i got to figure that out. But I'll be there the first couple of nights to watch the action. All right, Todd. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. You got it. So again, a thanks go out to Todd DeFreeze for taking the time and coming on the show today and lending us some of his expertise on the NFL draft and some of the specifics involved in this year's draft class. Um, in the first round of the draft, of course, taking place tomorrow night in prime time on ESPN. And the film network will have a lot of coverage as well. Rounds two and three will take place Friday at 6.30. You heard Todd say in the interview, that's the night he's most looking forward to as a draft consumer college football geek, as he calls himself. And then rounds four through seven will take place on Saturday afternoon. First off, this is a brilliant move by the NFL, moving this into primetime, the first round, primetime on Thursday, and then rounds two and three, 6.30 on Friday. They're trying to achieve the 12-month sporting calendar domination. And they're much closer to that now with their maneuvering with the draft than they were previously. And really, the NFL over the past handful of years has revamped their entire offseason. I mean, free agency, not too long ago, used to begin at midnight in the middle of March. But now it begins at 4, at 4 p.m., 4 p.m. Eastern, middle of the week. And it's a, it's, it's a smash hit. I mean, for that entire week, entire two weeks, really, and free agency is really going middle to end of March before the NCAA tournament starts, uh, the NFL rules. And here at the draft, they used to just rule weekends, Well, now they rule an entire week in two weeks, if you count the reaction early next week from all the happenings on Friday night and Saturday afternoon. So it's beyond brilliant for the NFL putting the first round of the draft primetime on Thursday night, second round Friday night, third round Friday night as well, then rounds four through seven on Saturday, which won't draw in maybe the casual fan, but you know the hardcore fans going to be watching there's a lot of hardcore football fans, a lot of hardcore college football fans. And also on Saturday, that's a day where a team like San Francisco may say, wow, we still have you know a lot of draft picks. Let's start moving up and down the board, accumulating picks for future years. Let's try to trade some of these picks for NFL talent. So it's going to be an entire weekend of it and a great weekend for the National Football League. And why the draft is so popular, I think it breaks down to a couple points. Number one. The NFL is America's most popular sport right now, and college football in a lot of areas in this country, not so much in the Northeast where I reside, but in a lot of areas of the country, college football is number two, or it's number 1A, right behind the NFL, or right next to the NFL. Um, so it combines those two sports, and really those two phenomenons in most areas of this country, the NFL and college football. Um, and it also allows people, let's not take this out of the equation either, it also allows people to play armchair GM. People love playing armchair GM. They love looking at the board. They love prognosticating what their favorite team is going to do. They love saying, oh, this is a weak draft class. This is a deep draft class. So if you have a pick in the middle first round or the late first round, trade out, get some second and third round picks, trade out for future years. 
They love doing that. They love second-guessing, and there is no better form to second-guess than the NFL Draft because the maneuvering is happening right in front of you in real time. I mean, that's why we're attracted to fantasy sports. There's the gambling aspect, yes, which certainly draws in a significant portion of the population. I know that's what really draws me into it, but the armchair general manager aspect of it as well is what draws us into fantasy sports and fantasy football in particular. Uh, I know me, on my Red Sox podcast without a curse, during the baseball offseason, uh, when games aren't being played, those are some of my favorite shows to do. Why? Because you get to second-guess moves. What's the market for this guy? What's the trade market for this guy? Uh, should the, the Red Sox trade top prospects for this star player who's two years away from free agency? Is that a wise move? You know, would it, it, It's great. I mean, half of why we follow sports, I feel like, is the whole armchair GM aspect of it, and no event... Um, and no event puts that on display more than the NFL draft. So I really think that's another big reason why the draft is as big as it is and has become as big as it is, um, because people love playing armchair GM. And this thing was a hit 20, 25 years ago, and ESPN was still in its relative infancy. I mean, ESPN put the draft on television when they first launched, and it was a massive hit right away because sports fans have always wanted to play armchair GM and now you add into the NFL popularity, college football's popularity, the fact that with satellite dishes and packages and cable television, you can see more college football games than ever before, so you really feel like you have an idea of what a lot of these college football players are about, even if they do not play in the major power conferences. So it's a perfect storm, really, and I don't see it simmering down anytime soon as far as the popularity of the NFL draft goes. And another interesting point about the draft this year as NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell has sent down an edict uh, telling media members to not tweet out picks ahead of time. I'm going to be very interested to see if media members follow this edict from Goodell. You look at the coverage of the manhunt for suspect number two, Thursday night into Friday morning here in Boston. The FBI, Massachusetts State Police, were asking media members and the general public as a whole, to not tweet out and not report what they were hearing over the police scanner. Because you could just dial up the police scanner and listen in, and what was happening was a lot of people were tweeting out what they were hearing over the police scanner. And of course, if you can hear what's going on in the police scanner, and if you can read what's going on with the police scanner, the bad guys can do it too. So the FBI and Massachusetts State Police and federal authorities were asking people to not tweet out what they hear over the police scanner. And some people listened and some didn't. I wonder if the FBI and state police don't have the kind of power to control what you tweet out. And what's really an issue of, uh, of safety, personal safety, you, know, you have a terrorist on the loose in the greater Boston area. If people can't contain themselves from tweeting out info over the police scanner in a matter like that late last week, at the NFL draft, you're going to tell me people are going to be able to contain themselves? For my entertainment, I hope so. I mean, it's like a spoiler, right? I mean, we're all on Twitter. Whenever we're watching any sporting event, I mean, it's come to the point, even when I'm watching a playoff game, you know, a basketball playoffs going on, NHL playoffs going to pick up in a few weeks. I'm, I'm on my Twitter 24-7 during these games. I mean, during the draft especially, when there's so much downtime, I'll be on my Twitter 24-7. It's a spoiler. You know, someone tweets out the pick ahead of time. So we'll see, though. I mean, Roger Goodell's made the request, and good for him for doing it. But we'll see if media members follow him. And if 
certain media members don't follow him. We know how restrictive the NFL is anyway in terms of media access. I wonder if there could be some repercussions for some of those high-profile media members down the line. You know, because we forget, ESPN, I mean, these are right holders with the NFL. So will they, you know, does a platform like CBS maybe have a little more freedom? Since, well, CBS is a rights holder. Um, you know, pretty much everything is a rights holder in the NFL. I mean, they have NBC, CBS, ESPN. Trying to think, I mean, I guess some local outlets, right? Some local affiliates, some local radio stations don't have any, you know, aren't rights holders with the NFL. So I wonder if, you know, a lot of the local guys will maybe be the ones who are tweeting out the picks ahead of time where the national guys kind of have to stay back because their bosses are telling them, look, and they got this great scoop. I know you want to tweet out the pick a few minutes ahead of time, but, you know, I mean, listen to Roger Goodell. I mean, he gives us, you know, we, we give him a lot of money and he gives us his product. So let's not, let's not ruin this. So that will be from a media geek perspective. And I certainly would categorize myself as someone who likes to follow uh, the sports media. Um, it, it will be interesting to see um, how that all plays out over the weekend. Moving on to our third down segment, it's the Big Up Slowdown segment, where I say a statement, and then express my agreement or disagreement with that statement by saying Big Up or Slow Down. Question number one, more in the Darrell Revis trade. Uh, with the acquisition of Revis, the Buccaneers pair him with safeties Deshaun Goldson and Mark Barron. The Bucks, of course, had the worst pass defense in the league last season. Pick up or slow down, does this move, acquiring Darrell Revis, make the Buccaneers a bona fide playoff contender in the NFC South? Uh, I'm going to go with big up here. I think this move, and along with the signing of safety Deshaun Goldson, uh, does a lot to bring the Buccaneers to legitimate playoff contender status in the NFC South. Because as Todd DeFries mentioned, uh, in this division, with the New Orleans Saints offense, and Drew Brees, and Marquise Colston, and all the weapons they have, and the Falcons with Matt Ryan and Julio Jones and Roddy White. I mean, you need a shutdown pass defense. And the Buccaneers were like Swiss cheese last year in the secondary. They add Goldson. They add Revis. Uh, they certainly improve a lot in terms of the passing game. Because when Revis is healthy, we forget, because he wasn't healthy last season, but he's the best defensive player in football, if not one of the best players, period, in football. He can shut down an entire side of the field by himself. So few guys in the league today can do that. He might be the only guy in the league today can do that. who can do that. I know Richard Sherman likes to think he's the other guy, but we'll see. I mean, I still take Revis' track record right now. We'll see about the health, and that may be the biggest question of all. But if healthy, yeah, this acquisition of Darrell Revis, along with improvements from Mark Barron, and the acquisition of Deshaun Goldson, uh, certainly greatly, greatly increases Tampa Bay's pass defense. And then at NFC South, that could be enough to put them in the conversation. Uh, they've added Doug Martin, you know, a terrific draft pick a season ago. Had a terrific season last year. Vincent Jackson, they spent big money on two years ago as well. Had a great first season in Tampa Bay last year. The key to all this is quarterback Josh Freeman. It's very tough, if not impossible, to win in the league without a quarterback. We'll see if Freeman's rookie campaign wasn't a fluke. Not so great last year. It's put up or shut up time for Freeman, especially in terms of a contract. Um, but most of all, from the Buccaneers, from my perspective, there seems to be a changing of culture there. You know, the Glazers own a team overseas, a soccer team in the English Premier League, and they're often accused of funneling money from the Buccaneers to that soccer club. Well, they signed Vincent Jackson last year. They signed Deshaun Goldson this year, trade for Darrell Rivas this year, then sign him to the six-year, $96 million extension. And because none of the 
that money is guaranteed, they can't prorate any signing bonus throughout the deal unless they restructure it. So each season, they're paying that full $16 million in the salary cap. So this is a team now that's going to be spending up to the cap pretty much every single season. Um, so it certainly seems like a changing of culture there. The jury is still out on Greg Schiano, right? I mean, they started well last year. Then you had the thing with the Giants at the end. Buccaneers teetered off in the second half. I'm still not sold entirely on Schiano and whether his brand works in an NFL locker room, but the Buccaneers have certainly spent over the past couple seasons. On paper, their roster is vastly improved from, you know, let's just say, three years ago. So we'll see. From my perspective, at least, an outsider looking in, there certainly does appear to be a major culture change in Tampa Bay, and that has to be a very good thing if you're someone who follows the Buccaneers. Final two questions here will be centered around the NFL draft. The 49ers have 13 picks this year. Big up or slow down, or are they the team to watch in the draft? In my opinion, big up. San Francisco is the team to watch in the draft, the defending NFC champions. They've been in arms race with Seattle this entire offseason. Tit for tat. Seahawks acquire Percy Harvin. 49ers acquire Anquan, Anquan Bolden. You know, Seahawks acquire Cliff Averill for the defensive line. 49ers acquire Glenn Dorsey for their D-line. I mean, tit for tat. That's the way it's gone in free agency thus far for those two clubs. Now come the draft, this is an area of the offseason where the 49ers with 13 picks have a decided advantage over Seattle. Will they trade some of those picks for NFL talent? Will they trade some of those picks to move up and down the board? We'll see. The biggest thing for the 49ers and Jim Harbaugh and that front office is they have options. And that's the best thing you can have heading into the draft. So with all those picks, with the kind of management the 49ers have, the kind of coach they have, there's no doubt about it. The 49ers, you can guarantee it, will make at least one, if not multiple, notable trades and notable moves at the draft this weekend. Now, the Kansas City Chiefs have the number one pick in this year's draft. But are they the worst situation in the league? Big up or slow down? Chiefs have the number one pick, but does that mean they have the worst team or worst situation in the league? And I'm going to say slow down here. You know, I think they're really not as bad as a lot of other teams in that top 10. I like Kansas City's situation better than Jacksonville's. I like their situation better than Oakland's. Now, I'd be cautiously optimistic with the Raiders because it seems as if Mark Davis is doing the right things there. I liked the Matt Flynn trade for what that's worth. But it's a long process there. I mean, that roster with the Raiders is really devoid of talent. They need a lot of help. So I like Kansas City's situation better than them. I think the Chiefs are closer than the Raiders are. I like them better than the Jets. I like their situation better than Buffalo's. I like their situation better than Cleveland's. Both teams have a new coach, but Kansas City has Andy Reid. Cleveland's coach is relatively unproven. I like the Chiefs' situation a lot more than I like a lot of other teams picking in the top 10 of the draft. I like them better than Buffalo as well. So they're not as bad as the Jaguars and Raiders, the two teams picking directly behind them, or most other teams. In that top 10. For a 2-14 team, they're not in a terrible position. They have a lot of Pro Bowl talents on that team, especially on that defense with Derek Johnson and some of the players they have in that secondary. Jamal Charles went healthy, is still an upper echelon running back. Alex Smith has proven to be a more than competent quarterback. They have Andy Reid, who I don't think is the guy who will take them to the promised land, but he's certainly a guy who can restore some respectability to that franchise, which desperately needs it. So I say slow down. I mean, just because the Chiefs have the number one pick doesn't mean they're in the worst position out of any team in the league. They have Brandon Alpert, 
upper echelon offensive linemen as well. Um, so the Chiefs, out of all the teams in the gutter who are picking in the top 10, focus will be on those teams throughout the entire weekend. Chiefs aren't in as bad a position of a lot of their counterparts, even though, again, they had the worst record in the league and will pick number one tomorrow night. Now, closing out the show here in the fourth down segment, it is the Reamer rant. We're going to talk about Ravens linebacker, maybe soon to be former Ravens linebacker, Rolando McLean. Now, this is hanging, low-hanging fruit for me, given what's occurred over the past week plus here in the city of Boston. But it's still something I want to sound off on, and I would think I would have sounded off on it either way. Uh, McLean was arrested on Sunday after the police tried to disperse a crowd of 700 at a park in Alabama. Lieutenant John Crouch shared all these details of McLean's arrest in the incident in an interview with 105.7 FM Baltimore uh, about the incident. This is what Lieutenant John Crouch said. A quote, the officers got out, starting moving everyone out of the street when they heard somebody out of the crowd yelling, F the police, Crouch said to 105.7 FM, the fan in Baltimore. They continued trying to move the people out of the street, and they heard it again. And it appeared whoever it was was trying to get the crowd stirred up. They eventually identified the person in the crowd. They moved in, told him he was under arrest for disorderly conduct, at which point he tried to jerk away. The officers grabbed his arms. He continued to struggle, trying to pull all the officers further into the crowd. They did eventually get handcuffs on him, and at that point they recognized him as Rolando McLean. So he's since been charged with disorderly conduct and resisting arrest, Lieutenant Crouch said. The Ravens have commented this week that they are reviewing McLean's case. No decision has been made yet on Rolando McLean's status. My opinion on it, for whatever it's worth, is cut his ass. Get rid of him. No room for these kind of guys on the team. I mean, this past weekend, given what the city of Boston, really the entire country, has been through. I mean, we had that terror plot even in Canada a couple days ago that authorities were able to get catch wind of and put a stop to. What are you doing mouthing off to law enforcement? What are you doing mouthing off to police officers? So I got news for you, Rhonda McLean. You're no hero. You know, you may, have, you may have been called a hero. You may have been called a role model many times in your life before. But you're not even close, man. Talk about these Watertown police officers who were in the shootout with suspects number one and two this past Thursday night into early Friday morning. Both were believed to have explosives on them at the time. Neither wound up having explosives on them, but they were throwing pipe bombs at the cops, getting into a shootout with these terrorists. Tamerlan, the older brother, runs out of ammo, charges towards a police officer, and a police officer again at the time that Tamerlan had explosives on him, had a suicide vest on him, tackles him, tackles him, brings him to the ground, and cuffs him. Then the younger brother, Jakar, runs Tamerlan over with the SUV, the cops dive out of the way, and they go on a 12-plus hour manhunt for Jakar, the 19-year-old, suspect number two, still believing again he might have explosives or a suicide vest on him. Luckily for the cops, they used all their explosives in the car chase, tossing them out of the SUV uh, onto the cop cars. But you're to tell me that after what's happened over the past week plus, you're still going to say F the police and try to ignite a riot in a crowd of 700? That's what you're going to do? What's the matter with you? You know, I mean, even before... I had little patience for those who mouthed off to police officers and mouthed off to law enforcement officials 
But after the past week, I especially have no patience for any individual who is going to act that way. Granted, I don't know Rhonda McLean's personal history. I know he's a person of color. I know he's in the South. I don't know what's happened in his family. I don't know what his personal history is with law enforcement. I don't know if he's been wrongly accused of something. So I might be ignorant here. I don't know. I don't know anything about Rhonda McLean except the fact that he plays linebacker for the Baltimore Ravens. But I know this about him now. And looking at this story, how can you cut him any slack whatsoever? These police officers are the heroes. Just read the details, the gruesome details about the past week in Boston, especially that police chase, that car chase, Thursday night, Friday morning into Watertown. And you're to tell me, after the events of the past week plus, you're still going to say F the police? F you, man. We got no room for you in the, with the Baltimore Ravens. And hopefully no room for you in the NFL. F the police, F you. Go screw. Thank you for tuning in to Football Nation today, episode number 47. Again, a big thanks go out to Todd DeFreeze of FootballNation.com, College Football Geek, and any of other outlets for joining us on the show. Good luck to Todd. At the draft this weekend, we look forward to reading his coverage on the website and also on Twitter. As always, if you want to keep in touch with me in between shows, feel free to send me an email, areamer at bu.edu is my email address. Also, feel free to give me a follow on Twitter, at alexreamer1 is my Twitter handle. And also, as many of you do, feel free to leave a comment on the show page on footballnation.com. Always appreciate those. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the draft this weekend. We'll be back next Wednesday. There will certainly be... A lot to talk about, though, the drafts fallout. So long. Talk then. Talk next Wednesday.